I think the two big things that we need to focus in on are energy conservation. So not using energy in the first place and renewable energy. So taking the dregs of oil that we have left and using that to build renewable energy infrastructure for the next generation, because as it's going now, we're not leaving anything to the next generation. And I mean, when, when students take my classes, that is one of the big questions they have is, what the fuck are they doing for me? What is their, what, what incentive do I have to stay in the province of Alberta when their goal is to suck it dry and leave nothing for me or a future? Forgotten Corner Podcast would not exist without our listeners. If you enjoy the work we are doing on this show and would like to support further, please consider a donation through our Patreon account, patreon.com backslash Forgotten Corner Pod, or visit our website, forgottencornerpod.com. Welcome back to the Forgotten Corner Podcast. I'm Scott Schmidt. I'm your co-host here alongside my good friend and no longer neighbor, co-host Jeremy Appel. How are you doing, my friend, a week or two into living in Calgary now? Yeah, this is week two of living in Calgary. It's uh, it, it, it's great, all, all things considered. It kind of sucks not being able to uh, go out and meet people. Um, but I'm loving uh, the sheer amount of food options. That's been the huge yeah, I mean, I, I suppose like you get settled in in Medicine Hat and you just take what you get, but you don't have to go too far to realize that we're a little bit underserved as far as restaurants are concerned here. Although getting better, but yeah, I got Mister Sub last oh, night man. for the first time in in probably a few years. Well, and... I haven't had Mister Sub, I don't think, since I lived in Regina, which was like fuck two decades ago. So. And yeah, I mean, it's the little things like that. Like, is is Mr. Sub that good? Not really, but it, it reminds me of my youth. So I enjoyed that. Just like a nice turkey sub. Yeah. You know, with, I, I like their sub sauce a lot better than Subway's. I don't, I won't get into it, but I got to, I had the opportunity to be able to tell Truman all about confirmation bias this week as he was telling me a story of, somebody he knows in his life that uh, found a nurse on TikTok who basically said, this is all bullshit. <laughs> you know, there's oh, no. no, there's no, there's yeah, no TikTok, I've, I've heard TikTok saying really bad for like conspiracy theories. Like I 100% refuse to has... watch TikTok videos. So maybe it's an old thing. Like I'm too old to be cool, but like, fuck that. No, thanks. Yeah, well, I've got enough uh, social media addictions. I don't need another. Yeah, I have one. I have one. I like. I'm on Twitter too much. That's it. And that's like already way, way, way too much my life. Like, I cannot Snapchat. I don't get. I don't get Instagram. Like, why the fuck do you want to see my pictures? And certainly, why the fuck do I want to see yours? Like, have you ever had like a like? You're too young. But like when I was a kid, I had to go watch like a slideshow at my aunt's house from their european tour you know and you just sit there and watch it like your brain's gonna explode and that's what instagram is it's just a 24 7 slideshow of crap you don't want to see 
Anyway. Well, Instagram is like the positive vibe social media network. Yeah. I just realized my parents are for sure listening to this episode for obvious reasons, but I don't think they like that European slideshow none too much either. So I can probably talk some crap about it and they're okay with it. I'm pretty sure I remember them saying much of the same thing. Finished. Long. Here is us at Buckingham Palace. Speaking of pedophiles. <laughs> Are, is this were you trying to team me up to just say hello to Mo because that's like the meanest fucking thing we've ever done? Well, well, no, I, I was referring to the royal family. Oh, <laughs> I thought I was supposed to say the next line, and I was like, shit, this is like last week when we did the Hanukkah special, and I was like ill prepared for whatever opening comedy bit you prepared. You know, you had this all set up for me to read. What was it called? Read from the Torah, your Torah no, portion. My Torah portion. Yeah, like you got to tell me about the stuff ahead of time. Anyway, Mo, Mo Cranker, our editor and producer. How are you doing this morning, my friend? Doing great, Scott. How are you? I'm really good. Yesterday, you told me I should talk more on the podcast. Were you lying? Yes. Sounds Honestly, right. you should talk more. Yeah, he beat me in an argument. So he wants to like, but he refuses. He's not going to bring it up here because it would be like, it's not, it's not an appropriate argument, I guess. But he did, he, he beat me in an argument and he gloated in person a lot about it. Did he defeat you in the realm of ideas? Yeah, well, you, you were on my side of this argument and you got defeated by a proxy. You have to tell me what this argument is. Uh-uh, <laughs> uh-uh, my friend. No, but like it has to do with our like incessant need to eat dead animals. So, oh, of course, we lost. Okay, just leave it at that. All right, it's not. Let's not talk about it. Anyway, I want to get to our guests because <laughs> we've been waiting to do this for a, a bunch of weeks, and I'm really excited. And it's kind of like our first. Uh, well, it is our first sort of family connection to the show. So I'm really excited to get into it. Hey, so, hey, all our guests are family. Well, that's that's true. I shouldn't say that because Roberta and I have been family for like 25 more or more years. But um, I'm literally family tree related to our guest today. So I'm really excited to do this. So let's get into it. The Forgotten Corner is excited to welcome Brent Smith to the show this week. Brent is an instructor at Medicine Hat College and the developer of a new program set to begin next year here in southeastern Alberta called Agroecology. We're going to hear a lot about this program today and why it's a crucial step in a direction we must go, but for now, think sustainable agriculture. Brent has a biology degree from the University of Regina and a master's in physical geography from the University of Calgary. He's a former 14-year range biologist with Canadian Forces Base Suffield here in the Forgotten Corner, a former local candidate for the Federal Green Party, and above all else, he's my brother-in-law. Brent, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Scott. <laughs> well, thank you for sitting through all of that before we uh, welcomed you to the show, but sometimes we get talking about absolute nonsense. No one ever gets to hear it because Mo cuts it out, so we'll see what actually makes the show, but um we've been uh, you and i have been talking about getting you on this show since we started even doing the podcast and there's like a lot of really cool things that we want to talk about but the first thing and 
we want to get into today is like we do with all our guests is kind of hear their life story. And there's, you're telling me I'm going to hear things that I don't even know, which I'm a little bit, uh, I don't know if I should be nervous or excited to hear about because we've known each other since we were kids because our, our, our parents were, were friends. And that's how you and my sister met and yada, yada, yada. So anyway, I'm going to let you go. Um, I know you were from Regina because so was I. Go ahead. So we'll play a little bit of This Is Your Life, Scott, because your life is so <laughs> intertwined with mine. You mentioned our parents were best friends. So we, of course, have known each other for 35 years. Uh, if you go back a generation, which th this is the stuff that you don't know, your grandmother, your paternal grandmother, was best friends with my maternal grandmother. Uh, if you go back another generation, so our ancestors, they both lived in a very small town called Drinkwater, Saskatchewan. So Kelly and I, knowing all this, have sworn never to do Ancestry.com or anything like that <laughs> to figure out our genetic makeup because it would only reinforce stereotypes about Saskatchewan. <laughs> so is Saskatchewan like uh, Shelbyville in The Simpsons where it was like founded so people could marry their cousins? I have no doubt a lot of that went on. I just don't want to recognize that part of my history and I will deny it until I'm dead. Oh my God. I have so many questions that are like a, a different podcast that we cannot afford to have right now, but that's it. I, I had no idea. Do, do my parents know? Obviously they know. Like how come I'm always the last to know? It's crazy. Uh, and obviously small town Saskatchewan, everyone knows everyone. So you can't really get away uh, from that. No. Well, and like, I'm, I'm the old guy here on the show, but I'm the youngest of everybody in our family. So I'm always the last person to find stuff out. And people are always like, Hey, Scott, I'm going to tell you something you didn't know. And it's like, no kidding. Like you guys sheltered me for 20 years before I moved away. That's crazy talk. So now, on a personal note, you grew up in Regina um, and, and ended up at the University of Regina taking biology. Were you always just interested in science, like growing up as a kid? Like what made you want to do that in the first place? So I knew from a very early age uh, that I wanted to be a biologist. I, you know me well. I'm not an extrovert. I'm painfully introverted. So for me, going out in nature and doing field work was a natural fit with my personality. So I knew in grade school that I wanted to become a biologist. So went to the U of R, um, finished a degree in biology, and then I ended up working with a limnologist named Peter Levitt from the U of R. He's still there, in fact. Um, and I had all kinds of opportunities to learn about aquatic ecosystems. So we did lots of sampling of the lakes in southeast, southwest Saskatchewan. We also did some really neat um, sampling where we would go out to the middle of the lake, usually in the wintertime, and drill some cores, uh, digging up lake sediments. And from that, you can actually build up a historical model of the climate. So I was involved in a lot of climate change studies um, even 20 years ago. Now, you like you you were already here when you went to Calgary to get your master's right that's more recent so when you how did you end up in Medicine Hat let's talk about that because it's weird Perfect. like you and I are both we all live in Medicine Hat now but we didn't come for the same reasons right like my sister 
ended up here for a completely different reason than I did. It's just entirely coincidental that it's the same place. So um, what brought you here? So I, uh, in my studies um, doing this lake research, I ended up coming across um, an ecologist working at the north end of Last Mountain Lake. That's a well-known lake in Saskatchewan. It's halfway between Regina and Saskatoon. Um, if anyone knows hired... Regina Beach, that's where... That's that the is, lake. Yeah. So the north yeah. end of it is a big protected area. It's a national wildlife area. It's also a migratory bird sanctuary. So this ecologist hired me on for a couple of years and I got to do all kinds of neat studies looking at the effects of grazing and the effects of fire. Um, but I knew that job was going to end at some point. And it just so happened in the early spring of uh, 2000. Uh, yeah, it was 2000. May 2000, this job posting came up for this place I'd never heard of called Canadian Forces Base Suffield, who was looking for a biologist. In fact, it was the first biologist position that the Canadian Forces were hiring uh, to try and deal with sustainably training on military bases. So I basically quit my job on the 14th of May at Last Mountain Lake and started my job at Suffield on the 15th of May. Um, I lived in barracks at Suffield for four months before we ended up buying a house. In fact, I proposed to your sister at CFB Suffield in barracks. And I won't give you the history there, but I'm told it's a very lame proposal story. <laughs> So I I, my, our history is strongly tied, of course, to Suffield. Um, and that's where I really sharpened my teeth on studying systems. So in school now, as part of uh, the programs I teach, I teach students how to think in systems, systems thinking. And so my job at Suffield was to try and make recommendations to the base commander about managing land use. And that included like oil and gas development. Oil and gas development at Suffield was like a microcosm of what was happening across the province of Alberta. So when I got there in 2000, um, the first couple of years I was there, they were drilling almost a thousand wells a year. Um, and in some cases, without any regard for all of the federal legislation that applies for things like species at risk um, and policies like conserving wetlands. So I won't get, go into all the history behind the oil and gas uh, industry at Suffield, but there was lots of problems when I was hired on. And obviously they rec recognized that there was problems uh, managing the industry. So as an example, um, there are lots and lots of rules if you are an oil and gas player on private land or on Alberta Crown land in the province of Alberta. When you're playing at Suffield, those same rules don't apply. So essentially for a number of years, industry was operating without any serious rules about managing development. On the flip side of that, uh, if you're looking at reclamation, um, reclamation costs, if a company is to go bankrupt, are not like what's happening in the province of Alberta where we have an orphan well fund. An orphan well fund does not apply at Suffield because it's federal land. So it was recognizable uh, even when I was hired on, that there were going to be future problems. Anyway, I digress. There was all kinds of challenges in terms of trying to manage all kinds of land uses, but I got to see firsthand the pressures of oil and gas development, uh, the amount of money that could be thrown at problems on behalf of the industry to try and make problems go away, but also the power behind industry. And I, uh, I was threatened to have my job removed 
uh, by certain people I'm not going to name. Uh, I will never forget that day, but I experienced all kinds of pressure to toe the line and to basically allow industry to do what they were doing at Southfield, which I now, having looked back on it now, understand was basically happening across the entire province of Alberta. Lots and lots of pressure to develop resources as fast as you possibly can. So that was one thing I was trying to manage. The other uh, couple of things that I was trying to manage were oil and gas development and its interactions with military training. So as an example, company A comes out and decides to reclaim a well. And then the British army decides to do a military exercise right on top of that reclaimed well site. Well, company A has tried to do its due diligence and do all of the requirements to meet reclamation. So they've recontoured the soil, they planted all the grasses, they think they're good to go. The British army comes along and rips it all up and we start back at square one. The question is who now pays for it? So if you talk to the British army, they'll say it's the oil and gas industry that's responsible. And if you ask industry, they will say it's the British army that's responsible. So we had lots of issues where land uses were happening simultaneously and with um, compounding effects. And so I got to study all kinds of interesting things. Actually, the word, the scientific word is cumulative effects, effects of different things happening at the same space, the same time. So not only was I trying to manage oil and gas development and military training, we also supported uh, 5,000 head of cattle. So in some parts of the training area, um, and within the protected areas on the east side of the base, we allowed sustainable grazing. And the idea behind grazing at Suffield was to promote biodiversity for a lot of endangered species at the base. So I was trying to appease not only the base commander, uh, but try and keep the British Army and oil and gas development and cattle grazers on my side, trying to understand why I was making the recommendations I was making based on science. And in the end, uh, it's hard not to realize that you piss off everyone by doing that. No one <laughs> is happy with you because you're basically telling everyone that they can't do everything all the time. Uh, you're going to impose restrictions on them to be sustainable. So that was kind of my first encounter with dealing with all these different challenging land uses at the same time. And to, to try and deal with that, I began building giant models uh, and I recognized that I didn't have all the knowledge in my brain to develop these models to look at how things were changing over time. So I did another degree at the U of C. I finished in 2013 and I published a bunch of my work looking at how the prairie on the base, and I should have said this before, CFB Suffield is almost all uh, still native prairie. And so it's one of the biggest blocks of native prairie that's left in all of uh, southwestern Canada. And part of the reason why it's still native prairie is because it is an active military training base and it's very hard to do other kinds of land uses. So I did my master's degree at the U of C and I was able to produce even more models looking at how things were changing um, and coming up with cost estimates. So one of the things I was asked to do, and I won't give you the, the actual number, but I'll say it's a number and then a whole bunch of zeros after it. If the British army decided to leave Suffield, what would it cost for them to fix the training area? And so that was one thing that I had to produce. Um, how, much, how much would it cost if industry left Suffield um, and left the taxpayer on the hook? It's the same kind of number. It's, it's a, a number and then a whole whack of zeros after it. And so 
after having done that for 14 years, I was reaching the conclusion that chances are um, we're not going to be sustainable at Suffield in terms of managing the liabilities associated with oil and gas development. There was millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars of reclamation that was required at the base. And on the same front, the same kind of money requirements to fix the training area if the British Army ever decided to leave. Just as a, an aside, um, the German Army left CFB Shiloh, which is in Manitoba. And if you know anything about Shiloh, uh, it's basically a sandbox, very, very sandy soil on top of a very, very shallow water table. So when you're firing munitions and you're using things like lead and nasty chemicals, it's very easy for those chemicals to leach into groundwater. So Shiloh, after the German army left, um, basically put the, the Canadian taxpayer on the tab for, for cleaning up the mess. And the last I heard, it was half a billion dollars. So having seen and experienced um, other training areas and what was happening with military training, oil and gas development, I reached the conclusion that it was going to be a shit show in the future in terms of trying to assign liability, trying to figure out who's going to do reclamation, not only for the British Army, but for the oil and gas industry, trying to figure out if you've got two of those land uses happening at the same time on the same piece of ground, and one of them fucks it up, who's going to fix it? These were all questions that I was trying to ask and, and didn't really get any answers to. So that's kind of what led me to reach the conclusion in 2014, 2015 that I need to get the hell out <laughs> uh, because I could see the problems coming and I didn't want to be there when, when uh, the shit hit the fan, which I think at some point in the future it's going to do. So uh, from my understanding, the feds pay for orphan well reclamation on a military basis. No, and it goes back, it goes back, I can go into a little bit of history here. So if you didn't know this, uh, Alberta had an actual crown corporation that was responsible for developing resources in the province of Alberta. So that was called Alberta Energy Company, and that was created and operated at Canadian Forces Base Suffield. In 1997 or thereabouts, that crown company, that crown corporation became private and then continue to enjoy all of the privileges that the former Alberta Energy Company enjoyed. So the original agreements as they were written in 1977 said, no money would change hands between two crowns. So Alberta would not pay for um, things that would normally happen on private land, for example, compensation for the use of their land and those things. That kind of exchange of money didn't happen because it was between two governments. And in 1997, when AEC, Alberta Energy Company became private, they continue to enjoy um, those benefits. One of those benefits being that if they became insolvent, according to the agreements, it would be the Alberta taxpayer that's on the hook, not the federal government. So a lot of people are not aware that even though it's federal land, the agreements clearly state that in the end, it's the Alberta taxpayer, a lot like everything we see in Alberta, it's the taxpayer footing the bill. And that's increasingly the case for the Orphan Well Association as well, right? Where it's supposed to be funded by industry, but it's increasingly uh, getting money from the province and then the feds earlier this year 
one and a half billion or something earlier yeah. this year, right? And, From uh, I think it was technically a loan, but they're not going to see that. I have to watch what I say because I have a lot of friends that work for the Alberta Energy Regulator, the AER. But at the top levels, I would say there has not been adequate planning for decades. If you look at the total liabilities in Alberta, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars of outstanding reclamation requirements. There are no companies now that can foot that bill. And I fully expect it will be put both on the Alberta taxpayer and the Canadian taxpayer. I mean, we see it with Jason Kenney already. And he's more than happy to take that money. Well, and I've seen, I've, I've seen uh, like reports or articles saying, suggesting it's going to be like, we're talking like 125 years it's going to take to clean up this shit too, let alone like the fact that it's going to cost money that doesn't even exist. Well, and the other interesting thing is if you look at the oil sands as an example, the oil sands go through lots of environmental reviews. And those reviews in Alberta are a little bit different than the way the federal government does it. But essentially, um, if you can argue that you're going to use a new technology, even though it's never been tested, that's enough to get approvals to develop um, an oil sand site. So a lot of the reclamation side of things, they have no idea if it's going to work. We know already that it's impossible to rebuild uh, peat. So peat bogs that exist in the boreal forest, they will never put them back. There is no technology that can actually replace them. So relying on technology that doesn't yet exist uh, is another problem in the overall picture of reclamation in Alberta. Where I am in Southeast Alberta, the reclamation requirements are actually fairly straightforward. The, the, the actual outcomes are, are fairly well known, uh, but in the oil sands, I think it's a totally different story. Sounds like to me the epitome of uh, privatizing gains and uh, putting losses on the public. Exactly. Privatize the, the gains, socialize the losses. And I saw that, like I said, at a smaller scale at Southfield. And in fact, the base commander at the time, Colonel Dan Drew, uh, was negotiating access with industry and realized they were trying to lowball him. Um, and because it's such a large land base, um, understood that they would then take those rates, they negotiated with a large federal government entity, and then use those rates against local landowners. And then of course went to the media and said, this is the kind of shit that industry is pulling with Suffield. Everyone be aware that they're trying to lowball us for, for compensation. They're gonna use it against you as well. I mean, so it sounds like, I mean, I don't think we have to convince our listeners that, uh... Uh, our governments have ignored a problem for a really long time and ignored something. And now we've got a mess on our hands. that's going to take a really long time to uh, clean up. It sounds kind of like your job at the, at, at the base was at the end, you just, it felt like a mediator that no one actually listened to anyways. Like it was, did you just sort of feel like you were just talking to an empty room? I will say that uh, at least at the local level, at the base level, the leadership listened to me. Um, of course, any time someone didn't get their way, there was a direct line to Ottawa. Um, and so a lot of times the, the leadership or the chain of command within the military would sidestep to try and find political solutions. So that was kind of my history um, of frustration as a scientist, knowing that I was doing some really neat publishable science, uh, but in the end, it really didn't amount to anything because no one wanted to hear the, the painful reality of it. 
So I reached the conclusion that it was time to perhaps move on and, and focus on some more uh, productive things. Um, and so really I quit my job at the base and for a year, um, I thought it would be neat to see what I could do living on a salary of like less than 30 grand a year. So from making, um, I wouldn't say a huge amount of money, but a comfortable living as a biologist to basically going and living at the poverty line because I didn't have employment and I wasn't really worried about it. I paid off my debts. Um, I started my permaculture business. And of course that was the year I decided to run uh, for the Green Party. So I, I took on this permaculture business. I started doing some consulting work around Southeast Alberta. If you know nothing about permaculture, it's a lot like sustainable agriculture. The idea is that you use systems thinking. So looking at how things are connected, the inputs and outputs, uh, you combine geography and climate and biology and you do all these things and you come up with new ways of designing food production systems, energy production systems. Um, and began playing with stuff in my backyard. So uh, in my yard now- uh, You gotta talk about your yard, because it's the bomb. Um, I have uh, basically a food forest. And the goal behind permaculture is to produce what's called perennial food systems. Systems that you plant, you don't have to harvest um, with mechanical tractors or use a whole bunch of energy. They literally, the food comes to you. So I've got cherries in my backyard. I've got peaches. I've got pears. I've got kiwis. I've got so uh, good pawpaws. I harvest about 5,000 liters of water off of my roof. So most of my production doesn't need irrigation. Um, it was just neat to be able to do all these things and show that we can be much like more sustainable than we are now. Like you're just talking about the cool exotic shit that you have, like you guys like his entire yard is made of food like vegetable like growing off the fence and like bushes of berries and vegetables growing or christ's sake because they're like in between the patio stones like onions will sprout up because like there's just so much food that it just starts to like replenish itself it's the raddest yard and your front yard is like squash and like it's insane this house and uh, every year if you're related to them you get to benefit off the coolest stuff like like who how do like who th would think that you'd be like harvesting pear juice in medicine hat and all of the things the, these kinds of things that happen so i mean i'm glad we got to bring up the yard because it's the raddest thing like they you talk about people that like are uh passionate about something but then they don't like eat or sleep or the the whole thing like brent like walks the like walk for real like their house is like converted to geothermal it costs like no money to heat anymore like they are like off the grid you want to talk about people that have to like if you want to talk about climate change stop using oil and blah 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 yeah they did it's insane so anyway i just had to compliment the shit out of you on that because you're, you're it's the best yard in alberta for sure See, Thank you, and you've got some more food coming there. Go ahead, oh, John. I, 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 I've only been to your place in like the fall slash winter, so uh, I'll have to come by in the spring, summer and uh, eat. Yeah, sure. if you show up around like August and September, that's really when you want to show up. I mean, it's a spectacle in the spring when you see it all growing, but you want to come at harvest time where like you just like the doorbell rings and someone's got pie. 
Like, oh, I just made you a couple pies. Here you go. Love my brother-in-law. Anyway, we got to move on. So listen, what got you teaching at the college? Because I really want to get into the program uh, as soon as we can here, because it's such a good, amazing program you're doing. But uh, eventually you ended up going to teach at the college. How did that come about? So while I was still at Suffield, uh, with my experience dealing with industry and, and reclamation, I was asked by the um, coordinator for the reclamation program at the college to start teaching part-time, um, teaching students how to um, prepare the soil and to figure out what species of seed they should use in seed mixes for, for industry. So I started teaching part-time in the reclamation program. I was hired on last year uh, full-time to teach in the reclamation program. And it was during this time that I thought about um, coming up with a new program. Basically, it's called agroecology, but the other word for it, of course, is sustainable agriculture. Understanding that we are uh, a massive um, agricultural um, economy in Southeast Alberta. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, before oil and gas took off, we were an agricultural economy. After oil and gas leaves, and it's leaving now, we are going to be an agricultural economy. Um, it surprised me that it's taken this long for the college to actually have a program that deals with agriculture. So in my reclamation program, um, I saw a lot of students that would decide to take two years of this diploma program at the college and then move off to the uni uh, University of Saskatchewan or University of Alberta, big agricultural programs. And I began to ask, why can't we keep some of those students, those families that are in Southeast Alberta actually here locally? So it took me the better part of two years to put this program together, identifying um, economic factors, identifying social factors, identifying uh, climate change factors, trying to basically build a, a systems view of all of the challenges that are facing the Southeast Alberta and coming up with a program that I think addresses a lot of those challenges head on with the idea that we can um, train our youth uh, for them to find jobs and careers in agriculture, because in, in the end, that is where we're going in the future. Can we now, what I remember you came and did this presentation at my house and it was one of the coolest, but kind of saddest things I've ever been a part of. To be honest. It's just scary as shit. What we got facing us as a society or as a planet. Um, but like everybody gets agriculture, you know, we all understand agriculture. What, what's the sustainable part of this? Like, what is it about what we do that is so, unsustainable right now that's a loaded question <laughs> so if you if you go back in history um according to archaeologists and anthropologists there's been 20 some advanced civilizations every single one of those civilizations has failed and they've all failed for very similar reasons and one of them is the inappropriate use of agriculture causing things like soil erosion um, consuming too much of soil resources and not replenishing them through natural sources. So in our version of agriculture, we have massive tractors that cultivate the soil. Those tractors spray herbicides and pesticides. Um, they use a whole lot of diesel fuel. Uh, 
And then once that food is harvested off of a field, it goes somewhere to be processed. Of course, all that takes energy. Eventually it ends up at a grocery store where you pick it up. So if you look only at the energy inputs, how much energy, and in this case, it's fossil energy, how much energy goes into our uh, agricultural system, it takes somewhere between 10, well, I guess that's on the high end, seven to 10 calories of oil to produce one calorie of food and get it to your table. So 87% of our economy uses fossil energy. Agriculture, our current version of agriculture is one of the most intensive uses of fossil energy. And so if we're talking about things like climate change as an example, uh, climate change is caused by agriculture. 25% of emissions globally are caused by agriculture. So agriculture has a massive energy footprint. And of course, just for the very fact that we're using a depletable non-renewable resource as our source of energy does not bode well for the future. We're using, we're basically converting oil and natural gas into food and that can't last very long. Well, and like, uh, sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. Well, that's interesting because agriculture, of course, has been around forever. So obviously it didn't always uh, require fossil fuels. So what what changed? What What is it about agriculture today that is so energy intensive, whereas it wasn't, uh, you know, a thousand years ago your your guest your guest a couple of weeks ago brought that up talking about the the change from horse-drawn agriculture to mechanized agriculture and really that was the change um, that caused an explosive growth in agriculture both in saskatchewan and alberta uh, allowing one farmer to produce essentially enough food for thousands so it was the mechanization of agriculture and that was a fascinating Uh, podcast, by the way, but the whole idea that we converted our energy source in agriculture was a fairly quick one. It was only a couple of decades uh, between having everything pulled by horses and oxen to basically having tractors driving around doing the same kind of thing for much, much cheaper, much faster. So that's a good question. And the other part of that, if I can just continue, is that we uh, had lots of local agriculture. So Looking back at Medicine Hat, an area in the 1950s, 1960s, most of our food was grown locally. We had far more diverse food production than we do now. Um, There was a focus on meeting the needs of the local people. And part of what I'm trying to do is restore that idea of producing more food locally, because that's how you bring jobs back to small centers like Medicine Hat. Well, and like you, I, I want to break, speaking of, you know, Medicine Hat and area, Redcliffe is the, you know, greenhouse capital of Canada or whatever. And, and, and it's a of point of prairies of the prairies. Okay. It's a, it's a point of pride and the, the greenhouses down here are awesome, right? Like you can get food, you can get fresh veggies, like all year round, that kind of thing. It's pretty awesome. But as an example, it's extremely fossil fuel intensive at our current way of doing things right Brent like the the way that our greenhouse sort of industry is is not exactly sustainable itself they are the largest emitter of carbon in our region and and now have to pay a carbon tax because of it and I certainly don't fault them for it if we didn't have that kind of food we would have a much smaller economy and we would not have the level of food security that we do right the question is how long can we continue doing it and from all the work that I am doing I don't think 
um, we have a viable future continuing to use natural gas uh, heating in the winter months to the extent that we're doing and also running things like um, the LED lights to, to grow the food. Basically all you're doing is converting more natural gas uh, generation. That natural gas becomes food essentially. You're taking the, the energy from that to, to grow lights to your food source. So again, it's converting fossil energy into food energy, which is not sustainable. But it's all like conservative politicians like Drew Barnes are always telling me about uh, how natural gas is the wave of the future because like it's lower emitting than than oil. So as long as we do everything which not, with natural gas, we're all going to be hunky dory. But maybe, maybe that might not be the case. Well, as the sorry to interrupt, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't point out since it's been a year uh, since they announced their launch that the Canadian Energy Center says coal is not the answer. So, Oh, well, I'm glad we could hear from the war room after a year of yeah. fighting all those the, battles. The, the, that was actually from last year. Remember that video they posted? <laughs> yeah. That they got ratioed on YouTube. Yeah. So what, so what people don't talk about is that natural gas production in Alberta is actually declining. Um, the, the peak if you believe in peak oil or peak natural gas, I do. I think the theory behind it is very solid. We had peak natural gas in 2002. Production in Southeast Alberta is now down 65% compared to that peak. Um, and certainly we can bring more natural gas online in the future, but that natural gas is gonna cost a hell of a lot more than it costs now. So in the end, food for Canadians is gonna go up and it's gonna go up a lot. So in the next couple of decades, if you think next year, and I think the forecast for 2021 is a, a food price increase of 10 to 11%. If you think that's bad, wait till you see what's coming because there's a lot more of those kinds of shocks down the, coming down the pipe. Well, and like, this is the thing is like, so I love living <laughs> in your life, you know, because uh, Brent's the guy that's like, Oh, you think climate change is bad? Oh, wait till you hear about the acidification of the oceans kind of guy. Like that's the kind of guy Brent is. He really like brings up the mood of the room sometimes, right? I'm not a good guy to hang around, no. It's, uh, it can be pretty <laughs> that's depressing. That's not true. I love hanging out with you, but you better be you better be uh, expecting to have some reality in your life because uh, you're not going to hide from these problems, right? And I think that's the that's the opportunity for Medicine Hat and area is we have the potential, if we get off our ass and accept reality, to be a world leader in sustainability. We have so many resources in Southeast Alberta that are not related to natural gas, coal, or oil that we have not fully exploited yet, that we could be uh, leaders in and attract other people to Southeast Alberta. So the question so is, are we going to do it? Well, what I'm excited to hear, like I'm actually excited about is the fact that you were, you developed this program and it was approved all the way up the levels, right? Right up to the provincial government, I guess it has to approve these kinds of things, right? Like you able to get uh, this program going. And I think that's like, at least like, that's a positive we should, would stick on that. Like you presented the need for this program and everybody actually listened. 
Yes, they did. And that was the part that was also shocking to me is this was vetted through the, the Kenny government. I'm not sure how or why it was approved because it goes a, uh, against a lot of their ideology, but someone approved it. And so I'm going to take my chances and we'll see how things go. Now, what kind of things am I going to learn when I come there? Like I'm going to learn about sustainable agriculture, obviously, but can you break that down to a, into a couple of key things or key areas that, that, um, students are going to sort of delve into? I can give you some factoids, I think, that are enlightening about agriculture. Uh, and this is more globally, but then I can talk into to, to the local stuff. So there was a study, this, the stuff I'll, I'll talk about now is all peer-reviewed science. So if your readers want to know the sources after, I'm happy to provide them. Anyway, there was a study produced three or four years ago now that looked at the biomass of the planet, trying to figure out how much things weigh. And so one of the things they did is look at mammal biomass. Of course, we all know what a mammal is. So they tried to uh, weigh all of the mammals on earth and then divided them into two categories. They, they had one category of humans plus livestock. And then the other category was wild animals. So livestock for humans include cows, horses, sheep, goats, all the mammals that we consume as part of our livestock. So when you make a pie chart of that and you figure out what the proportion of wild animals is compared to the proportion of humans plus livestock, globally now, 96% of mammal biomass is humans plus livestock. There's only 4% that we have left to the wild. Most of that is caused by global agriculture and growing what we call monocrops, crops of, of one kind, one variety, to the exclusion of everything else. Another factoid that I think it's relevant to, to mention is if you take chicken biomass, some scientists argue that we should be called like the, not the Anthropocene, the, the age of man. We should have some name based on chickens. 70% of all bird biomass are chickens because that's how much chicken we can consume. And so they figure if a, another society in the future digs us up, they will know our society based on chicken bones alone. So we are having a massive effect on the environment just through agriculture. Well, think about that in perspective for a second, because like the bird thing, what's how many are chickens again? What's the percentage is chickens? 70% of, okay. of global biomass of birds is chickens. So think about this, that 30% that is the wild birds, like we... So many billions of wild birds die a year running into windows or being eaten by cats and stuff like that. And they're not even putting a dent in the population of those birds. And that still only makes up 30% of the birds on the planet. That's how many goddamn chickens there are. We have a, a very intensive agricultural production system and it's reliant on, um, Supply chains that in some cases move food thousands of kilometers away from where it was grown. Um, and looking at the future of energy, we're not going to have enough affordable energy to move that much food around the globe. And so really agroecology, the idea behind it is to localize food production systems so that we can grow as much food, as much healthy food as we can locally. And so if you wanna visualize that, think of Medicine Hat 50 or 60 years ago. 
a lot less uh, mechanized agriculture, a lot more diversified economy, a lot more employment because it was based on a local um, local supply chains. You were feeding your local population, and uh, if you were feeding them garbage food, you got feedback. I mean, I can't think of a better way to buy your food is right from the producer themselves. Um, if you're not happy, you can give them a blast of shit and say, I'm not happy with this. You cannot do the same kinds of things with our, our global food production system. You go to the grocery store, uh, you complain about it, nothing's really going to happen. The other part of that, I would say, is that a lot of the food that we grow in our agricultural system now is bred so that it can be shipped thousands of kilometers away. So you end up with tomatoes that taste like cardboard because they are designed now not for the taste of the tomato, but for longevity and for being able to ship it from point A to point B. So a lot of our food tastes like garbage. And the reason why it tastes like garbage is it's been bred that way. I wanna change a lot of that for Southeast Alberta. I can like I can't see Mo right now because he turns his video off during these things. So he might be off making bagels as he calls them. But oh there he is. But he is fucking smiling ear to ear for sure here in this conversation right now. Cause this is this the livestock stuff is uh Mo's thing. As a vegan, he's pretty passionate about the meat industry. So now, now it would be a good time for him to uh, you know, say something. He's gonna just now. We'll just. I'm not gonna say he's giving us the finger, but it's he's giving us the finger with his eyes. So eye finger, right? Now we need to we need to switch to sustainable agriculture. And like, I don't think anybody I've ever met is more suited to teach people that than you. I'm tr telling you, we can just go to his house and like you'll be there for five seconds. You'd be like, yeah, that, this is the guy. Can you tell us a little bit about the? Um, and I'm going to botch this, but is it the EOI? Is that what it is? Ratio or whatever? EROI. EROI. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because this is something about the oil uh, industry that I think a lot of people um, who who still think that there's time left or whatever to do certain things that don't maybe understand that like um, what we're talking about here is when you dig up a, a, a barrel of oil that takes a certain amount of oil to dig that right it's the anyway i'm gonna let you just explain it but it's really interesting and i was hoping you could talk about that today you're on the right track absolutely so when i ran for the green party this was like one of the only things i talked about wanting to get people to think about this word called eroi and i will admit as a scientist i was horrible at communicating what the idea is but essentially i think of it um as an ecosystem and so Ecosystems are governed by physical laws. Every living thing in its environment has to gather more energy than it consumes or more than it uh, uses as it lives or else it dies. So every living thing, plants, animals, are all scrounging for energy and they're using energy to get that energy. Those same kinds of physical laws apply to the oil industry. And so the, the metric, the measure that we're talking about is net energy. Uh, and it's completely missed in economics. And I can go off on that if you like, if we've got time. But we have a problem in that uh, society as a whole is energy blind. We don't understand that oil is depletable uh, and it's not replaceable. And we are going to be having problems right away because of this thing called net energy. 
So if you talk to an economist, they're concerned about return on investment. If I invest $10, I want to maximize my profit. I want to maximize my return on investment. So I might talk about a ratio of 10 to one, meaning that I put in 10 bucks, uh, my return on investment is 10 to one, I make a hundred bucks. So economists are concerned about return on investment. From a physical standpoint, from the standpoint of physics, we're concerned about net energy, meaning how much energy, when I subtract all the costs of energy, do I have left over? So the metric that we use is called energy return on investment. It's the same kind of idea as return on investment. So 100 years ago in the oil industry in Texas and in California, you would invest one barrel of oil to drill a well, and you'd get 100 barrels of oil out of the ground. So your net energy is 100 minus 1. You get 99 free barrels of oil. And you can use that for any part of your economy. You can build roads, you can build hospitals, you can invest that in, in agriculture, you can do all kinds of amazing things with that oil. I will say oil is phenomenal. One barrel of oil replaces 17 years of human labor. That is the story of civilization, is replacing human labor with fossil energy. Anyway, Economists don't understand depletion, oil depletion. They look at it in dollar terms. They don't look at it in physical terms. So in the province of Alberta in the late 1990s, the energy return on investment of oil was somewhere around, I think it was about 38 to one. Uh, so the net is 38 minus one is 37 free units of oil. Here we are in the 2020s, and uh, I'm not going to use any research that I've done. I will use research from the University of Calgary Haskane Business School that looked at the EROI of the oil sands. And according to their work, the EROI is between three to one and five to one, meaning you have a net of two units of energy or a net of four units of energy. Solar energy gets a higher net energy return than our fossil fuels remaining in Alberta. What that also means is the cost to get that oil out of the ground uh, in the oil sands is it's no longer economical. Capital has been fleeing Alberta for the better part of a decade because companies have figured out that they're not going to make money off the oil sands. So the cost to, de to develop a re uh, resource is one thing. So to bring on new oil in the oil sands, the cost to extract it is going to be between 100 and 200 bucks a barrel. And where is oil at right now? Well, it's like 45 bucks a barrel because of things like COVID. Um, so we have uh, the economic term is demand destruction. People cannot afford oil. Demand has dropped. And a lot of the producers that thought they could make money in Alberta have left. And that money is not coming back and it never will that oil will stay in the ground because it has such a low net energy value. Well, and didn't you tell me uh, that anything less than three to one is where you lose money? Like you need three to one minimum to even break even or something, because once you've get, gotten it out of the ground, you need another unit to transport it to where you got it, where it's got to go and, and that kind Very of good. thing, right? Phenomenal. So just to go back for a second, oil companies can't make money 
if the EROI is one to one. So if I subtract one from one, I get zero. I have zero net energy. So there's a physical limit there that economists don't recognize. Companies go bankrupt if they hit that, that ratio of one to one. When you do the math, and this isn't my math, this is published peer-reviewed science, says that you need an EROI at your rate of three to one just to maintain your existing oil infrastructure. So that oil, when it comes out of the ground, you can't put it in your car. You have to refine it. Well, that refining takes energy. And once it's refined into gasoline, well, it's still not at your car. It has to be shipped either through pipelines or on trains. We're, we're now talking about shipping raw bitumen to China. All of that takes energy. So the minimum, absolute minimum break-even point for industry is three to one. And that's essentially where, where the oil sands are at right now. They're at the breaking point, and that's why companies are leaving. So the underlying physics say that the future of the oil sands, it's already dead. Um, and we might have a little bit more production, but it's going to be far more costly than it is now. Well, and like places like Texas, where conventional drilling is still more plentiful than it is here, right? That's another aspect here. Like places like Texas, for example, are still at like a 10 to one or something like that. Are they not in certain places where Very like good. they, Absolutely. and so it's, it's like, you wonder why people are fleeing here to go to Houston. It's because there's still some fucking money to be made in Texas and there isn't any to be made here. Correct. And so places like Saudi Arabia and Russia uh, have known for years that it takes a lot more money to invest to get these projects up and running. These projects also rely on uh, expensive oil, like a high demand for oil. We've only had one time period, which was in 2007, 2008, where oil went over 100 bucks a barrel, which would make the oil sands viable. But what happened after 2008? Well, we have the global financial crisis, <laughs> yes. which in part was caused, economists don't understand or agree with it, but it was caused in part by a massive price spike in oil. Um, the economy doesn't work without energy and without oil, without cheap oil, the economy doesn't run. Now, I talk a lot of shit about economists. I, I don't think they're bad people. I just think they're playing Dungeons and Dragons and everybody should figure that out that like it's fucking a made up game and they act like scientists. That's what bugs me about them. Um, it, it's astrology. 100% astrology for nerds like Jeremy put it a few weeks ago, right? Like it's literally just freaking witch doctor shit to me. But um, you, you also have problems with the way, what is it about? I guess the question I'm asking because we're running out of time, but why, if this is peer-reviewed science and even the goddamn University of Calgary Business School or whatever is talking about this shit, how is it that while that's known and while the exodus of companies is happening, we still have politicians and economists telling us that there's 30 years left, don't worry, we got lots of the world needs our oil and they'll come like does jason kenny just not know what eroi is do economists not know what that is because i mean i i tried to mention it to an economist and he started talking to me about eroi on newspapers and i was like okay this conversation's fucking over so that's a good question <laughs> economics the current field of economics known as neoclassical economics has no root in physics or biology 
When you take an economics degree, you have no understanding of systems, you have no understanding of physical laws, and you have no understanding of biology. And so when they develop their theories, and I could run through a bunch right now, uh, are utter bullshit because they don't conform to reality, which is dictated by physical laws. And so you get ideas, uh, and I'll quote David Frum because he's one of my favorite guys, uh, admitted he was the uh, uh, speechwriter for, for Bush. When, when uh, the US went into Iraq, David Frum admitted, of course, that they went into Iraq for oil, oil reasons. Uh, but also in a, in a news piece for CNN wrote that uh, peak oil is dead and for all intents and purposes, oil is not a finite resource. So the whole field of economics doesn't recognize limits, like physical limits, like we're on a finite planet. The planet has a finite ability to absorb all of our pollution. Um, they don't either understand or don't incorporate that kind of uh, underlying theory within their economic models. And so we end up with problems and I, I wanna bring it up if, you're, if you'll allow me to, because I, I sent you a text this week because it got me all fired up because I know how much you hate economics. Um, <laughs> I but hate it was, economics, uh, but I also hate David Frum, so I'm kind of conflicted. I think he was being sarcastic maybe when he said he's his no. favorite. Oh no, you like him? Oh. I, I, uh, I don't even know how to describe him. Uh, it's, it's, he's had his come to Jesus moment, but uh, I still think he's very disingenuous. But here's yeah. the, here's the, the, the uh, peer-reviewed study I wanted to point out. It's called The Appallingly Bad Neoclassical Economics of Climate Change. And this was published by Steve Keen, who is a well-known author uh, criticizing conventional economics. So the story behind this is a guy named William Nordhaus who advises the United Nations and has had a whole bunch of, of his work recognized by the International P uh, Panel on Climate Change, IPP, or was IPCC. Uh, published, he published a paper in 2018. So this guy named William Nordhaus. And in his paper, um, he basically concluded that with four to six degrees of additional warming above and beyond what we have now, the global economy would take a hit of like uh, 20%. So it would be in the context of things, a very, very small hit to the economy. When you align his work against the raw science done by physicists and climate change professionals, four to six degrees of warming means that most humans will be dead. So... <laughs> There's a massive disconnect between what economists are saying, and I will say William Nordhaus for writing this paper um, and this, this citation that I just gave you here, the appallingly bad uh, neoclassical economics of climate change. Is a we'll takedown, link to that in the show notes. Is a, is a takedown of the paper that was written in 2018. So William Nordhaus writing this paper about climate change, knowing nothing about climate science, interviewed climate scientists as part of his study um, and then incorporated the views of climate scientists and uh, economists in one of his models. But in one of his model outputs, he downweights or basically reduces the importance of what the climate scientists are saying um, and basically concluding that there are no tipping points. We're not going to have any large problems uh, because most of the economy happens indoors, 
um, we don't need to worry about four to six degrees of warming. For that paper, William Nordhaus won the goddamn Nobel Prize in economics in 2018. So that's just one example of how garbage neoclassical economics is. You're all going to fucking die, but the economy is going to be sound. Like this is, it just makes indoors. me crazy. Go ahead, Jeremy. I can see you. Okay, so I wanted to ask what you think of uh, Trudeau's climate plan uh, that he released yesterday, namely increasing the carbon tax. Um, 467%. By, yeah, but well, by $15 a ton starting in two years. Um, and also uh, some investments in renewable energy, but not a whole lot a lot of like subsidies for like buying electric cars and um all these things what, what do you make that's a very good question i haven't had time to like fully digest uh what's been said um i think the idea of a carbon tax is good um i think the two big things that we need to focus in on are energy conservation so not using energy in the first place um and renewable energy so taking the dregs of oil that we have left and using that to build renewable energy infrastructure for the next generation. Because as, as it's going now, we're not leaving anything to the next generation. And I mean, when, when students take my classes, that is one of the big questions they have is, what the fuck are they doing for me? What, is their, what, what incentive do I have to stay in the province of Alberta when their goal is to suck it dry and leave nothing for me uh, or a future? So I think at some point we're going to see, and I know this sounds drastic, but we're going to see a nationalization of uh, energy producers. Uh, and I think you're going to see a big <laughs> push for renewable energy. It's going to take a crisis to do that, but I think we're already seeing that. We're seeing all of these companies go away and we're seeing uh, capital disappear in Alberta. So uh, the, the, the writing is on the wall. I think we're too late. Um, to do a full transition. If you listen to uh, Vaclav Smeal from the University of Manitoba, a really well-known Canadian writer, Bill Gates references him as one of his biggest influences. Uh, Vaclav Smeal says energy transitions take 50 to 100 years. So to do this properly, we're looking at not finishing this project if we start to undertake it for like until 2100, we'll be transitioning away from fossil energy. Most of that fossil energy that we think we're going to develop will never be developed. Certainly, we're going to still have oil, but it's going to be a hell of a lot more expensive than it is now. So do we want to use the oil that we've got now and build renewable energy infrastructure? Because you can't uh, not use oil when you're installing solar panels. To build solar panels, we have to mine silica. That uses oil. So to build renewable energy infrastructure, we can't get away from using oil. It's going to take a smart politician to, to sew the, the thread through the needle, but I think it can be done by trying to convince the rest of Canada that we can use Alberta oil to build this renewable energy economy. That's the only way that we're going to do it. Uh, but of course, Alberta's mission is to sell this resource as fast as it can. Do, do, do you fear that um, emphasizing, as the federal government is doing, the carbon tax um, could lead to a backlash that will take us back um, in terms of the fight against climate change? Yes, I, I think 
I think it's naive going forward to not think that's going to happen. Um, as oil becomes more expensive, because it's used in every sector of the economy, that means everything else is going to be expensive. And so if we're asked to, to deal with the consequences, not only of what we're facing cost-wise for all material goods going up in price, are we going to also then try and divert some of that money to build all of this renewable energy infrastructure? I think there's going to be challenges there. But I think the good news, at least the way that I am looking at things, is the demographics of Alberta. We have a massive cohort of young people that don't buy into all the political garbage um, that we see in, in uh, Alberta politics right now. And so I think in the next election or two, you're gonna see a massive swing, um, not only because of the youth, but because of the, the government here. It will continue to try the same old uh, tactics of bringing back an oil industry that's already dead. Um, so they'll double down, they'll try and bring it back, they'll, they'll sink taxpayer money in, into Ponzi schemes, but in the end, it's, it's going to fail. I mean, I hate, I hate to wrap up on a, on a positive chipper note like that, but uh, every time I talk to you, I'm always like so mind blown. Um, so I really appreciate you bringing some of this stuff to our listeners today and uh, seeing as we're family, I think we could probably do this again sometime and there'll be things like this to talk about. But thank you, Brent, really, honestly, for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, yeah, you guys. Thanks for joining us, Brent. Good to see you again. All right, my friends, this is the time in the show where we say a little thank you to our patrons who go above and beyond um, to... Uh, to Dave Bonmiller, to Big Red Machine, and to uh, Chris Sturwald. You guys, thank you so much. We had another person join the ranks, but they asked to be anonymous. So now we have like almost as many people trying to like be anonymous as we do that we're allowed to thank. And the way I see it is, is these people like want to support us, but they don't want to fucking admit it. They're like, I don't want to tell anybody I know you. <laughs> is this the same anonymous person from before? No, we have a new one. Now we have a new one. We have a yeah, we have a new like top tier supporter who refuses to uh, be acknowledged for it because, like I said, admitting that you know us is like, it's you know what I mean. Ten bucks a month is one thing, but like admitting you know us is pretty hard for people to do. Yeah, it's career suicide. That's uh, right. You'll have to tell me off pod who it is. I will. Now, I will uh, for sure. I will for sure. So listen. Um, we are going to do one more episode next week, a little quick little sort of Christmas special, which will be hilarious because it'll be me and Roberta and, and Jeremy on the show. So I'll be the only actual Christmas celebrator, but uh, we'll do a little just us next week. Well, Mo, you never even talk. What do you want me to say? You look at me like you're all like slighted now. He never even pretend to be on the show. Um, <laughs> anyway uh so and then we're gonna take a little break for the christmas and new year and come back strong in the new year but uh that's it for us this week great episode thanks everybody for coming we'll see you guys uh next week happy holidays bye-bye bye-bye